0: Since 2005, Blue Hat has been where the security research community and Microsoft come together as peers
1: to debate and discuss, share and challenge, celebrate and learn.
0: On the Blue Hat podcast, join me, Nick Fillingham,
1: and me, Wendy Zanoni, for conversations with researchers, responders and industry leaders, both inside and outside of Microsoft,
0: working to secure the planet's technology and create a safer world for all.
1: And now on with the Blue Hat podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Blue Hat podcast. We are super fortunate to have James Forshaw on our show today. James was one of the revered speakers that we had at Blue Hat recently, and we are glad to have him here to go into a little bit more depth about his talk, talk about himself, and let everyone know who James Forshaw is. James, if you want to give us a a brief description and a hello, and we welcome you here.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm James, I work at Google in the Project Zero team, which are a team of researchers, security researchers, finding interesting vulnerabilities in a wide range of products, including Microsoft products, which is my particular specialty. And I've been doing this, I've been looking at Microsoft products for security vulnerabilities for around 13 years now. I think my first CVE is from sort of 2010, and it's uh, always always new stuff to find and always new interesting bugs to uh to discover, which is what I enjoy. When did you join Google? I joined Google about nine years ago now so twenty uh before then it was I was at a security consultancy called Context who unfortunately are no longer with us. They are part of accenture these days but uh in that time it was independent work and I was doing work on .net framework research.
0: Have you always been in this part of the business? Have you always been in in tech? What what's if we go a little bit further back in the time machine, where do we first meet James Forshaw?
2: <laughs> that's a that's a bit of a long-winded answer to that well, one. That's what podcasts are for, aren't they? <laughs> I've been playing with computers since I was very young. My father was a TV engineer like he he well, he fixed uh, TVs and his brother-in-law owned a computer shop. And so my father's brother-in-law would give us computers once in a while and like, hey, just, you can play with this computer. And we got like an Atari 800 a long, long time ago. It's probably betraying my age a little bit, unfortunately. Um, (laughs) And I I, I was able to like take the magazines and write out the basic programs and play with them. And so I've, I've always had computers in my life, even from a young age. I went to university, And after university, got a job as a software engineer writing secure messaging systems, sort of had to deal with cryptography. But at this point, not really security in the sense that I do now in terms of security vulnerabilities, security in terms of like message security and information security. That sort of led on in turn to various other topics while I was going through my... Me and my friend uh, joked that we discovered SQL injection, because we were writing a application which needed a SQL backend. And of course, we weren't sanitizing the input. So <laughs> you got SQL injection. It's like, oh, this is an interesting behavior. And from there, it kind of became more and more a part of my, my work. And this is kind of where I ended up today. I ended up in the security industry and in the security community, as they would put it, doing conference presentations and things like that. So it's been a long process.
1: I bet that's such a a rush to, you know, once you've figured out what a security vulnerability was and each time you found one, that probably just compounded to be where you're at right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like, chasing that and then finding the bigger ones, bigger ones. And I have not myself found any uh, security vulnerabilities, but I could imagine that it works your brain, but also kind of gamifies security in a way, you know, in a positive way. It helps companies, it helps Google, it helps Microsoft, it helps everyone that's finding these vulnerabilities, and that's why the researchers are so important. But I can imagine there's a hint of like a gamification about that, that rush, that excitement, that that you, you still feel that. I'm assuming after all these years when you find something, do you still have that excitement? In most cases, unfortunately, I think
2: you get a bit jaded after so long doing the research because as much as the industry has progressed the same kinds of vulnerabilities still still appear. Like I'm very lucky in that the types of vulnerabilities I look for are not sort of their logical vulnerabilities. So generally each one is different in a way, but sometimes you find a bug class which you can just see endlessly. And especially with researching a product, a, a closed source product where I cannot directly influence the the progression of, I can only sort of indirectly Influence how the security work goes on on that product. It can be kind of unfortunate when you keep seeing the same bug pop up over and over again.
1: Right, right, like digging a hole in the sand.
0: (laughs) Could you expand, James, a little bit more on logic? You you talked about the types of bugs that you hunt for are sort of more logic based. Could you just sort of like compare that to other types of vulnerabilities and, and why it is that you go after? logic-based bugs and vulnerabilities?
2: When I mean a logic bug, what I'm I'm really referring to is I'm working within the parameters that the application was written or the product was written. So some developer has written a particular sequence of operations and I'm just trying to find some... Way of circumventing the security checks which are being done as part of that operation or, or of course sometimes there is no security check and that is the logical flaw this is usually contrasted with something like a memory safety vulnerability where you could argue it's kind of a logic issue in a, in a sense from a really low level perspective but in reality what those vulnerabilities are trying to do is cause sort of undefined behavior in an application so it's not that you're circumventing an existing logical flow. You are basically breaking the operating model of that application so that it does something completely unexpected, such as jumping to a completely wrong memory address when it's trying to execute code. So those are usually the two main categorizations. Now, there's lots of blurred lines between the two. Uh, There's a lot of overlap between them. Like, you may exploit something in a way which is common to perhaps both types of vulnerabilities. But the reason I look at logical vulnerabilities rather than memory corruption vulnerabilities is just personal preference. Like, going back to the sort of gamification concept, there is an aspect of... It's like a, I'm trying to solve a puzzle of some kind. And sometimes it's a case of you you can see a particular issue with the logic but you need to start bringing in other aspects. It's like this is only a vulnerability because some other piece of code can be interacting with this, and it's finding that crucial key to unlocking that vulnerability, whereas for things like memory corruption, a lot of the discovery of memory corruption usually boils down to sort of automated analysis like fuzzing and things like that, where your efforts and your your interest lies in writing the best fuzzer as opposed to finding the vulnerabilities if that makes sense because that's where your knowledge and your experience is going into as opposed to the specific finding the vulnerabilities because once your fuzz is written, you just run it and hope that loads of
1: cool bugs fall out. That makes total sense. I, I get that. You described that well. I didn't know about the difference, these two differences, but the descriptions you said, I think that those listening will really appreciate that. Thank you.
0: So do you approach the way that you search for logic-based vulnerabilities sort of in a similar, do you, is there a pattern or is there a, a sequence of events that you sort of take that is common when you are hunting for a logic vulnerability? Or is it, you know, are you relying on sort of creativity and, and intuition and sort of sniffing out responses to input and, and sort of seeing where things go like is every single logic vulnerability that you find yourself uh, discovering different uh, I mean obviously they're all different but is that pattern and that process in the way that you get there are there some some similarities
2: in general I have a process to my research and research processes is is usually quite individualistic like I do it in a certain way, other people do it in completely different ways. My general approach is to look for areas of potential interest, areas which I think might have unexpected behavior or unusual behavior and either do straight reverse engineering, stick it in something like IDA Pro or Ghidra and have a look, see what it, see what it's doing, see how it's behaving, or actually exercising it from an external perspective. And this is kind of the sort of open box, closed box kind of approach to, to sort of security research. Either I'm looking at the specific implementation or I'm looking at it from a completely, what is the external interface API specification for that interaction? Is there any obvious... Bugs in the interaction, like it may be a case. I read the specification. Microsoft publishes quite a lot of protocol specification for internet network communication. You can look at that and go, "Oh, there's an obvious logical flaw in in this thing." I wonder if, in general, especially with Microsoft documentation, it's usually a post hoc representation of what was actually implemented. <laughs> it's not. It's not a design in the sense that it was written before the implementation, it's a documentation of how the implementation functions. And so I can look at that and go, huh, interesting. Like, this is written in a certain way. Like, a a vulnerability I found last year was the documentation specifically stated, you're supposed to pass this magic number as this value. And it turns out that when I dug deeper, this magic value was actually indexed into a table which could change between different versions of, of Windows and so you had this situation where the documentation was saying oh it's number 42 and of course 42 depended on which version of Windows you were on so like that was an immediate vulnerability because it's like why 42 there's there's an obviously a reason
0: well that's that's the meaning of life that's okay. that's why it was course,
2: okay. <laughs> exactly but yeah it was it was kind of a it was a bit of a tell in terms of, huh, that's an odd thing to be documenting that without an explanation for why that number exists. Like it wasn't a specific value. It was just 42. You've got to use that value. Why? <laughs> in that example,
0: what did you stumble upon first? Were you just sort of reading through documentation for this new, this new feature or this new product and went, oh, that's bizarre why would there be this sort of somewhat arbitrary very specific integer that you need and then and then you sort of followed
2: that thread was that the starting point for you so in this particular case it was a feature which was implemented both locally and remotely so it was basically documenting the local interface but as if it was traversing over a network protocol so i'd kind of been looking at the local implementation and when i started look reading out like okay where where might this be used i started reading the the public documentation for this and i actually discovered oh yeah they are effectively the same interface and i'd already seen that oh it has this weird number wonder what that's trying to do and when i saw that and it was like very specifically like it's just an arbitrary number why are you asking questions right <laughs> like it was at that point i realized ah maybe this number has an actual significance in the local attack surface. And so I did more research on the local attack surface side, followed where that number was going to, and realized that the two were not matching up. Like, if you pass that number to the local implementation, you got a a crash. And then I actually verified that, oh, actually, yeah, even if you did it from remotely, it's just literally passing this number along. And so even remotely, you would also get this crash. And so it's that sort of when you have no information that you can you can glean from the documentation, you you have to ask questions as to why Microsoft are hiding that information. For Microsoft documentation, it's usually because they don't want to make people rely on that behavior. And so they just say, yeah, it's just a number. Don't mm. worry about it. But of course, then if it's not like codified that this number is very important and cannot be changed, the implementation is allowed to change it because it's, oh, it's an internal interface. Who knows, right? Why, why would we worry about this number? So it's complicated.
1: <laughs> it's complicated, but it's so interesting, which leads me to the next question. You spoke at Blue Hat, as we mentioned in the beginning, and you gave a great talk on writing your own security tools. Would you mind giving us a little bit of detail around your talk and your thoughts about writing your own security tools and the values and the benefits of doing that versus another methodology
2: yeah so when i was asked to do the talk it was like how what can i what can i actually present like i i tend to do very technical talks but i thought uh, maybe maybe a more high level sort of call to action type of talk would be good because i genuinely believe that Obviously, tools, the whole point of a tool in any general sense is to improve our ability to do something. And in security research, having better tooling allows you various different benefits. Like One of them is just simple automation, like making your life easier. I spend a lot of time in a disassembler looking at things, looking at artifacts, and it helps to have simplistic tools which take some of the drudgery out of doing that reverse engineering because there's only so much time I can spend on doing it and every, t- every moment I spend not finding bugs means that fewer bugs get found like if I'm if having to constantly do manual analysis of certain areas then it becomes very difficult to, to find the bugs, you just run out of time. It also helps massively in pinpointing areas of interest when I find a bug class, it's usually there is some sort of commonality. For example, it might be that a certain API gets used on a regular basis and you can do tooling which just looks for use of this API. And if you're going really fancy, you can even write tools which automate a bit of that actual analysis and even see if that calling that API is using the vulnerable bug class because it may be a case of just calling this api is not enough you've got to pass a certain value to it or a certain certain type of behavior associated with it so again you can kind of use that at least for my work to reduce the areas that you need to look at and to pinpoint attack surface that you can then do i can do my manual analysis on it's one of those things that without having this tooling, I think I would be massively less productive in finding vulnerabilities. And it helps that I have a developer background, so I can spend my time writing tooling, which not only can be used by me, but also I can give out to the community, which is one of the good things Project Zero allows me to do, is that I'm able to open source my tooling and allow other people to benefit from my experience and my, my development time. So yeah, it it covers a various range of benefits, I feel.
1: You wrote a book called Attacking Network Protocols. Do you go into detail a little bit with your tooling in that book, or is that down a separate path? Tell us a little bit about that.
2: So I did write sort of a a library to do network protocol analysis, but this came out of one of the tools I wrote when I was a, a contractor. It was common to end up on a a customer's site doing a contract job. Every time you had to do that, you had to wipe your machine because you weren't allowed to cross-contaminate information on on your laptop between, between customers. So we only had like a stock set of tools, your classic sort of pen tester type tools. Maybe we had a copy of Nessus on there. We had things like Burp to do web application testing. And one of the things I I found is that if you end up having to do sort of a non-standard protocol analysis, so not like HTTP or something well-known, then I'd end up having to just dig out Python or a, a C compiler and start writing something from scratch. Every single time I'd have to write something. And there was a few tools which kind of did a, a half-decent job, but... I decided on one site that I'm just going to start writing a tool to make it easier for something that I can stick back on the uh, in the standard image for a laptop so that it would be there ready for the next time. And so at the very initial work, it was just basic stuff like uh, network proxying support, things like SOX proxies or HTTP proxies, and then basic mechanisms to... Analyze the network protocol, but not like anything too crazy. But over time, I spent a lot of a lot of effort making this a better and better tool. And it had like a, a fancy graph view, and you could actually program a lot of it—the analysis—without ever having to write a line of code. You could just draw something in a graph and go, "Uh huh, this part of the graph, I want you to pop up a dialog box with an edit hex editor, and I can modify the packets and do that. and." it ended up being quite a comprehensive tool. So it was that from that that I decided to write this book on my experience of trying to hack network protocols. And yeah, kind of that book came out of the act of me writing a tool to automate the actual work of doing this sort of stuff. So yeah, it's kind of all tied in together in my my career. (laughs) So you talked about how, there were some
0: tools that existed, but you know it sounds like they didn't meet your needs. And then the title of your, your talk of Blue Hat 2023 was Why I Write My Own Security Tooling and You Should Too. Can you talk a little bit about this sort of ethos of while there might be a good tool out there or a tool out there, here's a scenario when you should maybe consider actually writing your own, I assume part of that is so you can learn, right? And you can sort of learn more about how does this thing work, uh, educate yourself sort of behind the scenes, sort of what's happening at a machine code level or whatever. But there are amazing tools out there. You are contributing through the tooling that you write and release. When should a researcher, when should a hacker, when should anyone consider writing their own tools? And then I think the second question is, you have a developer background, what do you do if you don't have a developer background?
2: So I suppose on the, on the first one, the, the time to write your own tooling is anytime you have enough time to, to write your own tooling. If, if you're on a, a contract job where you have a week to finish that, that project, maybe then is not the time to start writing brand new tooling. Well, it depends. Like like when I started writing that tooling, I, I was talking about, we were there with like five or six people. So it wasn't just me who was the sort of linchpin of that work. So I could spend my time writing a tool, which then aided my colleagues during the testing. But yeah, certainly one of the, one of the key times to write your own tooling is if you don't fully understand a, a particular technology. If you have very little experience of, say, a particular network protocol or some sort of authentication scheme or even just like talking to APIs on a a Windows machine, then relatively simple tooling to, to interact with that feature might give you interesting insights into how it's supposed to work. And you're going to have a better outcome from a researcher perspective if you can actually fully understand a particular technology. And in general, I don't think reading documentation is is a great alternative sometimes because it can be written very very poorly. And it also doesn't necessarily completely represent reality because documentation is rarely fully up to date. There are, of course, other reasons for doing it. The existing tooling, while there might be good existing tooling, I've seen many cases where there's even open source tooling for a particular technology, and you go, oh, I need this one feature, and you go and look at it, and it's such so badly written that it's very hard to add new features to it. And you could spend many, many hours trying to work out how this thing is actually structured and how the code is structured, and sometimes it can actually be just quicker to write your own quick and dirty tool to achieve that goal rather than having to fight with some other developers uh, view of the world unfortunately as you say not everyone has 20 years of development experience and I, I would like to say i'm a i would believe i was at least a reasonable developer <laughs> but we'll take you i'm word sure for it. yeah i'm sure i have my limits as well but these days, things like using existing libraries to build your own tooling, like Impacket, for example, is great for all the various different libraries it implements or protocols it implements for things like SMB, RPC, has authentication protocols like NTLM, Kerberos. If you want to write some sort of bespoke application to talk to a Windows server, then writing a bit of Python and loading in the impact it library is probably a good way to start because Python is relatively low. It's relatively easy to get to learn. I'm sure it's quite hard to master, but it's it's something which you can just spin up and it has that nice immediacy of giving you feedback quite quick. Like if you've done something wrong, it's going to tell you probably fairly quickly that you've messed up and rather than having to go through a compile cycle. And of course, pretty much every system these days, even Windows has Python. Well. Technically, Windows doesn't have Python, but if you type Python in in the command prompt, it will tell you to install it from the store. So it's something which is just there on every system. And the same can't be said for guaranteeing you've got a a C compiler and the attendant problems of writing code in C, which you have random crashes because you've done an off-by-one error or something like that. And it's also why I write in, in .NET. It has many advantages It's been useful in cases where you've got application control technologies such as uh, AppLocker, things like that, because generally it bypasses a lot of those application control technologies because it can be run out of memory without ever having to be officially loaded as a DLL. But it's also pretty good in terms of you don't have to worry about memory management. If you get an off-by-one error, it's going to throw an exception. You don't have to It's harder to write bad code than if you write everything in C or C++. So if you are new to programming, certainly something like Python or maybe .NET is probably a good good place to start.
0: I just want to clarify something you said there, James, which is fascinating, because when I see Burp Suite and all these sort of well-known tooling in security research space, I think of the the folks that write those tools, and, and rightly so, they are experts in that field and they are absolutely experts. But I think of the thought process as someone has expertise and then they have that expertise and then they go and build a tool so that others can sort of share from that expertise. While that is true, it sounds like not having expertise in a particular domain is also a really good reason to go and write a tool. Like You want to dabble or learn about something that you don't know about. Instead of waiting to become an expert and then going and write a tool, you actually write the tool as, or you start writing tooling as a way to become an expert or to learn more about it, which I just think is a fascinating piece of insight. Did I get that right? Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah. I would probably say something like Burp, for example. The people who write Burp these days did not have all the answers to what would be best for web application testing before they started writing it. It's been a long evolutionary process to come up with as comprehensive a tool as Burp now is. But of course, they also have researchers on staff who can add new features as they find new and interesting vulnerabilities by using Burp to find them. So it's kind of a an, one of those sort of large-scale tools. There is this sort of cyclic aspect to it, that you use it to find bugs and you use it to find new features and then you go, well, it would be easier to find this this type of vulnerability if I just add this new feature to my tool so that you kind of go back in and, in and of itself and that can then maybe find even more bugs and even new and interesting and complex vulnerabilities. But of course, also writing a tool, having some sort of concrete thing that you want to implement is also a good way to learn programming. Like doing just sort of like Advent of Code kind of toy problems is one thing, but actually having a goal and a specific endpoint in mind is very useful to kind of act as a forcing function to learn how to write software and how to how to program.
1: I can see the benefit to your point. If you want to get started somewhere, you know, Python, yes, it does. I can vouch that it does tell you that you've done everything wrong when you have done it wrong. <laughs> but um, but I can see encouraging folks who are wanting to get in, into researching and learning about writing tools, not only is that teaching them, but they might come up with a whole new approach or a whole new process that those that have been in the field for you know, decades haven't thought of. So for those that are fresh in the industry now listening, you know, see this as not like, hey, I need to get caught up. You might be finding a new way to pivot and look at something and it from a different angle. So it's a way of crowdsourcing in a a sense, like everyone's different, everyone's mind's different. So that could be greatly beneficial.
2: Yeah, I think a very good example of where a different perspective makes all the difference, like, as, as in a concrete example, is in the writing of fuzzers. Like, if fuzzing was such a simple topic and all you needed to do was write that one fuzzer and everything worked and everything was great and you found all the bugs, then there would be one fuzzer. There, would, there wouldn't be much need for more than one fuzzer.
1: When to rule them all, that's all you exactly. need.
2: <laughs> but there's always new new evolutions of fuzzing depending, it can be tailored to specific areas. Some new, like things like AFL, for example, was like a game changer in some ways in terms of how it conceptualized how fuzzing should work and how you should do fuzzing by injecting actual new code into the application compilation process and using that to do um, code coverage measurements and things like that. Like people should never assume that, okay, you've got, there's this great tool like something like Burp, which does all my needs. It never needs any more code because it's it's already the greatest. You should never really think about that like, because there's always some new perspective someone could have. I'm stuck in my ways in many ways. Like, I <laughs> Because I've been doing it for so long, I have blind spots which are probably never going to be resolved because... In some ways, I don't need to because it still works. Like right. my, <laughs> I can still find bugs using the techniques that I'm using today. But of course, a new entrant into the industry could, could easily come along and completely upend anything I'm doing by thinking differently, thinking in a in a new and interesting way. And certainly, tooling can can help in that regard. Like coming up with a new, an interesting way of fuzzing or analysis of of logical vulnerabilities, almost anything and. That's just how it works in in this industry. Up until, of course, AI takes our jobs, of then course. we don't have to worry.
1: Of course, when people have asked me why did you get into technology, and I said I would like to survive the singularity. Please keep me. <laughs> Speaking of uh, being set in your ways and been doing this a long time, uh, you have a long history with Blue Hat. You won the first Blue Hat prize, and you've been a speaker many times. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of your your tenure with with Blue Hat? <laughs>
2: Yeah, so yeah. Over the years, I've always enjoyed attending. At the very least, in the old days when it was like an invite-only thing, it was always kind of a a privilege to be invited, and then even more of a privilege to be invited to speak. A lot of my interactions with Blue Hat have come down to the personal relationships I built up with Microsoft over the years. One of the reasons I even entered the Blue Hat Prize, as as Katie Mazuris will always tell the story of, is that we met in a pub in London and she said, I've got this new thing, I really want someone to enter. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, do you want another beer? <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things that in these days where you've got, for example, companies acting as, as brokers for uh, security vulnerabilities like the sort of hacker ones of, of the world where they're, they're the ones managing things like the bug bounties and the interactions with researchers. I think it there's definitely a, a bit of a loss that you don't get to talk to the vendor themselves. Of course, some vendors just don't want to talk to, to researchers at all. I'm not going to name any ones in particular, but <laughs> there are massive advantages to having that. And having the blue hat, parts of of that as acting as like an outreach mechanism, I think is is very valuable and it's something which has been quite long standing in in microsoft and i've I've enjoyed being part of that and doing two or three presentations over the years um i'm trying to think how many Unfortunately, it seems that all the videos of my my participations have vanished have been erased from the internet. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We, we've so, got we've got a backup VHS somewhere. I'm sure we get yeah, that to you. Yeah,
2: I'm I'm hoping I I'm hoping I didn't imagine it all. Maybe maybe I did. <laughs> but yeah, then you get to do silly stuff like getting presented with a large comedy check on stage for your uh, your contribution to to Microsoft security. Did you actually get to keep the large uh, check? The large parody <laughs> so, check. Initially, I didn't take it back with me because it was I didn't want to take it on a plane. It was a bit. Bit much. I so, said, so "Can you post it?" Apparently, it got lost. The original Aww. check got lost. How do you lose so they, it? <laughs> what is the very, it's, it? It was in a cupboard somewhere, apparently, and it just disappeared. I think someone um, took it
0: to an oversized bank and tried to uh, and tried to cash it.
2: That's no, the it lawyers made sure there was like, a, "This is not a real check." Written on the bottom. <laughs> Smart. It was. It got reprinted, and I did get it posted to me. Another ridiculous, I, I, just silly anecdote while while I'm discussing posting large novelty checks. <laughs> Another thing I got from that was Microsoft sent me sort of the original Surface, like Surface 1, the original x86 Surface. Yeah. And of course, it comes in two parts. You get the screen and you get the keyboard. And I got the screen, but the keyboard was coming separately. So it's fine. Okay. And then one day I was sitting at work and I got a phone call uh, from a from a delivery company saying hi yes do you have a forklift? It's like I'm sorry what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah we've got this pallet for you. Um, yeah it's really like we need a forklift to to deliver it. It's like well no we just we're just an office we don't have a forklift. And it turns out for some bizarre reason they'd shipped one of these small Microsoft keyboards. On a pallet.
0: Oh, you didn't get a pallet of keyboards. You got one no, keyboard. No, I got one keyboard
2: on a pallet. On a pallet. <laughs> wow. Which really unfortunate, like, because this was also they'd released a Surface Table. The sort of and I was really hoping that they'd accidentally sent me a Surface Table instead of a keyboard, but no, it was just a keyboard. And for some reason, they sent it on a. Pallet. Maybe in
0: the warehouse, they had a Surface Table. And then they had a single Surface keyboard and they accidentally put the Surface keyboard on the pallet and the Surface table they tried to put right. in like a FedEx envelope and jam through a little big. tiny slot.
1: Still owed that table. That should be coming to you.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, that was 10 plus years ago now. It's probably, probably lost in the post, I think. And then James, just continuing, you know, your
0: long history of shenanigans with Blue Hat. This year, actually on stage, you were presented with a beautiful hat that had mm-hmm. um so I think, ears and um, some eyes on it. Jessica Payne, I think, gave that to you as you were coming on the stage. Why? What's the, what was it? Was it a panda? Yeah. It was a panda, yes. Are you able to elaborate on your association with the panda?
2: Of course. Well, I can. It's not a very interesting story.
0: Can you make it interesting?
2: Uh, <laughs> okay, so, no. Uh, well, basically, it comes down to when I left the consultancy and moved to Google, Originally, my Twitter profile picture was the logo of the sort of network analysis tool I'd written, which, again, comes back to the whole theme of tooling, right? Um, And it's like, well, as I'm leaving this company, where I was writing this tool, I should probably change it to something else. Now, my uh, Twitter handle is derived from... The name of an alien race in the Warhammer 40k role playing series is from the sort of Tyranids, and mine's the Japanese transliteration of it. Like a, a Japanese friend said, "Oh, this is this is how I would transliterate it into into Japanese." Oh, that's cool. And the beauty of that name is that it's so unusual. It's so this if you put the original English version of this this name, this alien race's name, in as like a, a username, you would never get it. So like, because it's a well-known name, whereas this chance if I go onto a website and try and create an account with this name, and it says, this account already exists, that's because I've forgotten what the password was, and I didn't realize I'd actually <laughs> registered on that, that service. Anyway, when I was changing across, um, and I thought, okay, I need a new profile picture... The obvious solution would be I'll get a picture from Warhammer 40k of this alien race, like big slobbering monster, like ah, like big like insect things, right, aren't they? They're, yeah. They're exactly. scary stuff. Yep. Yeah. And my wife rightly pointed out that that's not necessarily a good thing to to have as your your profile picture. It's like, why would you want like a scary monster as your profile picture? That seems very strange of you. And for some reason, well, I've just picked something else and it's like, what about a panda? And like get a picture of a, a cute panda. It's like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and so ever since I've I've been pa- associated with a panda. Um and that's just, just not how a bad it is. Thing. Right? It's
1: not a oh. bad thing. That is that is a great thing to be associated with. I keep looking and for those that are listening can't see, there's a a, a bookcase with all these cute little Things behind James and I'm looking. I'm like, are they all pandas? That was have been. That has been my focus for the most of this podcast. I, th- I think I've just
2: there's a panda just sort of hiding behind there. it? Is a, it's a pa- panda panda money box which I got in from Beijing Zoo, obviously next to the pandas basically. are there
0: any uh tyrannid warhammer 40k uh, little uh, you don't say statues what do they call them the little models the that figures yeah the figures you haven't got any of those
2: i used to have them i still have them i think at my parents house they're in a box somewhere but i never bothered that i was never good enough of an artist to want to show them off to anybody <laughs>
0: What is the, and and again, it's a podcast, people can't see what we're seeing, but you have a, uh, you know, you were talking about your, I think you said your father was a television engineer, and Mm -hmm. so literally he was repairing like cathode ray tubes and giant valves and stuff. Mm -hmm. Is that like a a, a vintage arcade machine behind you with a big CRT in the back of it, or is that something more modern?
2: Uh, That one is a modern one that was just bought from Best Buy Oh. Uh, I, I used to have a couple of proper um, Japanese cabinets which got shipped from all the way from Japan to the to the UK with big cathode ray tubes and all that yeah. stuff. And I've still got like loads of of Jama arcade hardware the sort of proper boards for them. Um but unfortunately when I I downsized from a house then to a, a two bed flat on my own and then to a two bed flat with my wife as she is now it had to be uh it One of them, I one of them I sold. One of them ended up in the uh, consultancy company. We used to play Street Fighter at lunchtime and things like that. And I left it there when I carried on. So maybe I'll see if they still got it and see if I can reclaim it at some point. But uh, it was, uh, yeah, it's one of those things that you think they'd be. They're extremely heavy, obviously, with hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Yeah, yeah, and they're made of like steel, and they're incredibly difficult to get through doors. Lead, like. And it was crazy. And, and they also absolutely stank of cigarettes, <laughs> but sitting in Japanese arcades for 15 years or whatever it
1: was. You so. oh, can't get rid of that. That's like no, part of it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's
2: <laughs> definitely a, a constant smell. So, uh, yeah, I like having them, but it's, at the moment it's just not worth the hassle of, of carting these things around the world uh, unnecessarily.
1: The smell of cigarette smoke, I, I guess I'm giving away my age. You know, I grew up in a time where just everyone smoked. You know, my dad smoked everywhere. My dad smoked in the car with the windows rolled up. You know, very great stuff. So it's like you remember those times fondly of, like, you know, businessmen and offices and airplanes and cars and everything smelling like smoke. So I could see, even <laughs> if it stinks of it, it's got a little bit of nostalgia there. <laughs> uh, definitely. And I've got,
2: the again, people aren't going to be able to see them, but I, I do have... My sort of of Japanese, oh. so on on the Japanese ca- cabinets, they would have ashtrays, right, for all the different like this is a Taito one. So this is from one of the Japanese uh, games companies, and they just have them on on the arcade machines in Japan. And it's like, yeah, I have it just to put in, uh, put in some coins and and my keys and stuff. Oh. <laughs>
1: The that's that's the games. best use of an ashtray these days. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
2: James, you've been
0: incredibly generous with your time, uh, both for Blue Hat and for Microsoft at Blue Hat 2023. Thank you so much. Before we let you go, you are literally today planning on getting on a plane and flying to Israel for Blue Hat uh, IL. Can you give us a bit of a, I mean, people will be listening to this episode after Blue Hat IL has happened. Yeah. But you know, give us a little bit of a sneak peek of of what you're going to be discussing there, and and then if you would like to, we'd love to know what else you're up to and and what we can maybe hear from you coming up in the in the near future.
2: So, the presentation at Blue Hat IL is going to be on the work I had been doing on Windows authentication. So I spent about twelve plus months looking at different areas of Windows authentication mainly focused on things like Kerberos, but also looking at things like credential guard, remote credential guard, trying to find as many sort of vulnerabilities as I can in those sort of areas. And I found the wide ranging of like RTE in authentication protocols. I found information disclosure bugs. I found authentication bypasses. And obviously I'm going to talk about bugs while I'm there, but... I'm also going to talk about some of the process that I went through, some tips on how to debug some of these areas, like how do you debug LSAS on a running system? How do you debug the isolated process for Credential Guard, which is normally running in a a virtualized environment, which you can't trivially debug, but there are ways of getting it to run so that you can at least run tests. And do analysis of it from the perspective of of like user mode execution. And so yeah, it's it's kind of just that culmination of of what I've been doing. As for the future, that's a bit less clear at the moment. I've been doing a lot, mainly Chrome work of late. I am one of the owners of the Windows sandbox on in Chrome, which of course is also used by by Edge as well. It's just pretty much the same code. And I'm always looking for new Interesting features of Windows that I can like increase the security of the sandbox in, keep my C skills up up to date when where necessary. Um, so a lot of that is really where I'm focusing because I go I have my ebbs and flows on security research, and I'm definitely sort of in a, in a sort of low point where. I, I, I'm losing a bit of interest in in the short term, so I'm gonna I'll focus my time on doing software development as opposed to security research. So at the moment, I have no no bugs in the queue with Microsoft, so which is a somewhat unusual position to be in. I usually at least have one kicking around, but I'm sure I'll be back in six months or so when I found some new interesting area to look at.
1: James, thank you very much for being here. It's been a pleasure getting to know you through Blue Hat and then also through this podcast. You've dropped a million interesting tidbits for folks out there, and I know that there's going to be a lot of questions, a lot of follow-up. Is there somewhere that folks can reach out to you if they want to ask questions um, from what they heard here or maybe they saw you present at Blue Hat and would like to follow up on that presentation? I
2: try to avoid using Twitter these days for... For obvious reasons, I am on Mastodon. I'm I'm usually fairly easy to find. Just search for James Forshaw, and if it has a panda on it, it's probably me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's probably that's probably the easiest way to, to get in contact. Um, or go on GitHub and use the issue tracker on on any of my tools on GitHub and complete and ask me questions about stuff unrelated to it and i'll probably get <laughs> get to it and then close your close your comment but uh yeah
1: great thank you again james we look forward to the next time we all are chatting again and definitely look forward to you being on the blue hat stage again maybe 2024 but until then good luck and i'm sure blue hat israel is going to be successful because you are being part of it thank you, very thank, much. you. thank you for being here Thank you for joining us for the Blue Hat Podcast.
0: If you have feedback, topic requests, or questions about this episode,
1: please email us at bluehat@microsoft.com or message us on Twitter at MSFTBlueHat.
0: Be sure to subscribe for more conversations and insights from security researchers and responders across the industry
1: by visiting bluehatpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.